Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast, where we explore all aspects of the climb to the summit from intermediate musician to the professional stage. Check us out online at thecellosherpa.com or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thecellosherpa. I'm Joel Dallow, your host. I joined the cello section of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 1999 and founded the Riverside Chamber Players based in Roswell, Georgia in 2003. Today's episode is sponsored by Clear Resources, your premier resource for compliance, legal, ethics, and risk. For more information, visit them online at clearresources.com. On today's episode, we have cellist Jen Humphreys, who I first met when she joined the Atlanta Symphony Cello Section in January of 2011. Jen is currently a member of the St. Louis Symphony Orchestra, where she has been since September of 2019. Welcome to the Cello Sherpa Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here, Joel. Before going to St. Louis, she was a member of the Dallas Symphony, the Atlanta Symphony, and the Charlotte Symphony. And she actually attended the same high school I did, the Interlochen Arts Academy, although it was much later than me. Not, not that much. Not that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After Interlochen, she went on to study with the world-famous cellist Lynn Harrell at Rice University and worked with Brinton Smith, principal cellist of the Houston Symphony, with an intense focus on the orchestral repertoire. So I wanted to have an episode or several episodes where we talked about what it takes to succeed in winning an orchestra audition. And I can't think of anyone I know who's had more consistent success year after year in winning positions wherever you decided you were ready to move next. How have you done this? <laughs> it's funny. Brinton said after the St. Louis audition, he said he thinks I maybe hold the record for the most lateral moves professionally. <laughs> <laughs> Atlanta to Dallas to St. Louis. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I, I'm still baffled by the fact that I've been so fortunate to play in as many wonderful places as I have. How did you manage that? What's the secret to your success? There's certainly not one secret. I mean, as anyone who's taken an audition knows, it can be a total crapshoot depending on your day. It has to be your day. But I do feel like I started to have some more success just from being super, super organized. I will not even pretend to say that I am the best cellist out there or the best cellist at any of these auditions. But I think being organized in your preparation and the mental aspect of these of these processes is just as important, if not more important than the, the physical preparation and all the practicing you can do. For me, especially with this last one, for St. Louis. So that was in February of 2019. I basically mapped out literally on a piece of paper all my time for like three months. And this one was definitely more intense because this move for me was much more personal from Dallas. My husband already had a job in St. Louis. And so it really was for personal reasons. And I think those are the hardest auditions to take to go to a most, place. Most pressure, right? Most pressure. Yeah. You put on yourself or the, the places where you know somebody like every audition in Houston that I feel like I've taken, I have totally bombed because I could visualize who was sitting behind the curtain and it was former teachers and it totally got in my head and it was terrible. So the ones where you have some kind of personal connection are, are often the hardest. And so I knew I had to be more prepared for anything and to not leave anything up to chance for this one. I feel like so much of the mental preparation for these processes is these two different parts of your brain almost. And I've seen it described in different ways in different places. In the art of the, the inner game of tennis, I think they talk about self one and self two. 
in a lot of sports psychology books, they talk about the, the training mindset and the trusting mindset. Right. For musicians, it could be more like practice and performance. You know, this ability to have two very separate compartments of your mental focus. And when you start off preparing for something, this could be for a concert or a recital or an audition. It could be for anything. When you start off preparing for something, you're spending most of your time in the practice mindset, you know, really breaking things down, working on the physical aspects of it, doing a lot of listening, a lot of studying. And as you gradually get closer and closer to the date of whatever, the performance or the audition, you need to be shifting the amount of time you spend in the performance or the trusting mindset. And that is where you turn off any sort of critical or analytical or kind of almost active part of your brain. And you just trust that the work you've put into it is going to work and is going to be there. Do you have some sense as to when that actually happens in the process? Is it four days before, a week before, <laughs> three weeks before? <laughs> so this is where I hadn't done this before for any other audition. This is the one where it was super OCD and organized, where I had it the day before I hardly practiced at all. Two days before I was just like running lists and recording myself. Mm-hmm. Three days before I would have, you know, it was like that. And I was playing mock auditions for people, but I stopped t- playing mock auditions two weeks before. Cause I was like, at a certain point, you just have to say what's done is done. You can't keep working on things and criticizing yourself up until the very last moment. And that's a really hard thing to learn, I think, because at an audition, you're sitting in a warm-up room and everyone is practicing furiously, you know, going over things. And I put on my headphones and I just was listening to music. I was doing Sudoku puzzles yep. and not playing. And that's really, really hard to do. I agree. Because <laughs> you feel like you can make one thing better. You can make one thing better. But then you're in this initial mindset of being too aware of what's going on and not trusting the work that you've done. And so at a certain point, you literally have to say, I am not allowing myself to fix anything else. It's not going to be perfect, but this way you don't kind of self-sabotage, which I think is what happens a lot with people taking auditions is you put in tons of work and you sound so good. But then when you get on stage and you have five or 10 minutes, you just shoot yourself in the foot because you're too aware of what you're actually doing. And you need to just like turn your brain off and just trust it and let the muscle memory and, you know, all these processes take over automatically. Do you remember an audition where you fell into that peer pressure and kept practicing because you had the time and then walked out on stage and had no muscle left? Absolutely. <laughs> I've it done was, that too. Um, yeah, it was for the Rochester Philharmonic. I don't remember what year it was. I remember it was freezing. Uh-huh. It seems like all these auditions happened in January or February. Yeah, I played a prelim round and had advanced. And it was maybe that evening. And I practiced all afternoon. And I literally walked on stage for the semifinal round. And my fingers would not work. It was absolutely embarrassing. Yep, it usually <laughs> takes one to teach you that lesson. Yep. I did it in St. Louis, which was audition number three or so for me. And there, everyone's practicing in one room because where you you know this because you're there, you only have one room for everyone and you get a private room about 20 minutes before. So you fall subject to this peer pressure of everyone else working on everything. And you think, well, if I'm not doing that, maybe I'm doing something wrong. (laughs) Right. I'm missing out on some opportunity. No, that's exactly right. And that's even more of a reason because you're not going to get anything done in front of everybody else. Like that's ridiculous, but it is, it's a lot of pressure. And so 
you need to give yourself time to ease into that mental state of just trusting the work that you've done so that when you're in that situation, you don't fall into that trap. Yeah, there's a big difference between the whole practicing and then performing mindset. And I think a lot of us have trouble making that switch. And if the first time you make that switch is you walk out on stage and play for the committee, and all of a sudden you're hyper aware of everything that's happening, you're probably going to have some problems. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, some people get lucky. Some people, this happens naturally for them. I am not one of those people. And so I have to, it's funny, it's weird to think about, but I have to practice the trusting mindset. And, and for me, that was just like scheduling the time. Like I have 20 minutes today to, to really work on some details. And then I'm just going to run stuff. And I'm going to record myself and go back and listen to it later. But, you know, just to like give yourself that feeling of not being able to stop. And, and how, how often uh, did you play for your colleagues and friends and do the mock auditions? Did you do that a lot leading up to this last one? Yeah, yeah, I did. And that's another big part of practicing this performance mindset is putting yourself in these performance situations that feels terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, again, it's hard. No one enjoys these experiences. Especially, I think, once you're in an orchestra, it's weird to talk about taking auditions other places. And so sometimes it's hard to find colleagues that you trust or feel comfortable enough with to ask to play for. Whether you're in school or you have a job already, absolutely. I think I played for four or five people at least once, sometimes more than once. Uh -huh. And I would record myself. I would get their comments. I would take notes on myself going back and listening because... It's crazy how many things are different when you're playing in front of somebody else. And like you said, you don't want that first time to be at the actual audition. Yeah. And don't you think it's also possible to mimic that a little bit by just recording yourself regularly? Definitely. Even if you don't have an audience, you can kind of mentally put yourself there, press record on your phone or whatever you're recording on. Yeah. And I mean, with phones now, it's so, that sounds so old. With phones these <laughs> days, it's so easy to record yourself. You don't have to have any sort of special gadgets. So yeah, absolutely. Record yourself a lot. But then at a certain point, you have to start not listening back, like maybe record yourself so that you make yourself feel that pressure, but then don't go back and listen to it later because you need to just be, let it go right. and be out there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about when you uh, grew up. You grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky. Were you surrounded by music in your family and your community? And, and what kind of influences did you have in that environment? I was. So both my parents are musicians. They both taught band in the public school system that I that I went to. And they also are still both very active in ensembles and, and other groups, playing in community groups, playing at churches, playing weddings. There was always a lot of music going on and they both were practicing and things like that. And I think I took up an interest in the piano at a pretty early age, just kind of for fun. They were very supportive very encouraging. And then I started Suzuki violin when I was six until I saw Yo-Yo Ma play on an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood and thought that looked a lot more fun and switched to cello soon after that. And there was a great teacher who just recently passed away, actually, Dr. Joan Mack, who I think probably taught thousands of, <laughs> of Suzuki string students in Owensboro over decades of a teaching career. And so she was wonderful and eventually went on to some other teachers in the area and then to Interlochen for high school, as you said. So I was very fortunate that my parents were very supportive, kind of picked up early on that I had a decent enough ear and made it possible for me to go to different summer camps and things like that to kind of expand my horizons because I was very much a big fish, small pond at first. Yeah. And what instruments do your parents play? My mom plays the flute and my dad plays the trumpet. 
I have a brother and a sister and we all went through the band program. I played clarinet in the band actually until high school. I did not know that. I did. I didn't want to sit through the open D string tango and beginning orchestra when I had been playing for a while. So I, I did beginning <laughs> band until I switched back over. How was your clarinet amateur? <laughs> I pulled it out at the start of the pandemic. Wow. <laughs> it was it was about what you'd expect. <laughs> So you started on the cello at six. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this on many of the podcasts that have come before you. Rainer started at six and Stephen Isserlis started at six and I started at six. And I was wondering, do you think there's something magical about that age? There must be, right? I mean, I feel like it's more, it's usually violinists that start younger, like maybe like three. at three or four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, something. I mean, that just seems crazy to me. I mean, six seems a very reasonable age to be starting a disciplined activity like that. Maybe it's just physical. Maybe it's easier because we have to sit and it's a bigger instrument. Actually, you know, I think it's just because we're generally pretty chill people. So we're not <laughs> we're not in a rush. <laughs> cellists, cellists are chill people. Yeah, cellists are chill. That is true. And it's hard to start a student. I've had this experience myself starting really young students that can't quite read yet. Because unless you're a Suzuki specialist, you don't really have the tools to train them at that age. They don't have the language necessarily to grab it. So six is that first point where, you know, a lot of people are going to kindergarten or first grade around that age, and you're starting to get introduced to all of the other things in life when it comes to education. And it seems logical that if you're going to start it, that's a good time. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. But I also wonder if there's something about starting at six that doesn't make you better because there's obviously advantages. I've seen people that start at 10 and 12 that are doing just as well or can play the instrument even better. But I wonder if there's something just having that innate musicality run through your body a little bit earlier, if that just gives you that sort of advantage. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think about, yeah, like wind and brass players don't start till junior high. Right. That doesn't make them any less successful or or musical. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. Well, we'll keep uh, exploring this topic as we continue (laughs) to interview people. We're going to pause for a short break. To all of you other cello Sherpas out there nurturing future generations of cellists or any other instrument, we have a new feature just for you. Many of the topics we will cover here on the Cello Sherpa podcast are worthy of further discussion, so we wanted to let you know about teaching points we will be posting on our website after each podcast. We develop these materials with you and your students in mind. Feel free to copy them, hand them out, and use them as assignments to be completed after listening to our podcast, or just tools for raising the level of professionalism in your studio classes, rep classes, orchestra, or band programs. Please visit our website for more information and click on the Teaching Points tab. And as always, give us some feedback on what you'd like to learn more about on the Cello Sherpa podcast. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast from. This helps our rankings and makes it easier for others to find us. So I assume you've gotten the opportunity to perform with Yo-Yo on multiple occasions now in all the orchestras. I know I have. It's always a pleasure. What was it like to meet him for the first time since he was your inspiration? And did you share that story with him? I did not share that story with him. And I sh- I should, I think. So yeah, I've had a chance to, to perform with him several times also. The first time was in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. He came and played Dvorak. And he was just so, he's so nice. Yeah. 
He has no airs about him at all. He actually, at break of rehearsal, when we were rehearsing his concerto, he came over and was like chatting with the cellist. And then he was like, I'm just going to leave my Strad here on stage if anybody wants to play it. And then like walks off. Wow. So we all got to play it for just a minute or two. <laughs> and I remember that so clearly thinking, wow, I sound like Yo-Yo Ma. This is all it takes. It's just to <laughs> be handed a great instrument. He's so inspiring. He just exudes joy. And I think that's why he's become such an icon for classical music. He's willing to play in different genres. He's been just a great positive role model, I think, for musicians, not just classical musicians, any musician, really. But I wish I should tell him that story. I, I should try to do that if we get another opportunity. He would definitely appreciate it, I'm sure. He really is the ultimate cello Sherpa. He's guiding all of us. And I think Pablo Casals was the guy who turned the cello from sort of a baseline instrument into a solo instrument and made people realize the cello can be like the violin and we can play this great repertoire and, and be something special. But Yo-Yo, I think, has taken it to the level for our generation beyond that, where everybody knows Yo-Yo now and everybody knows the cello because of Yo-Yo. Because of Yo-Yo. They might not know they know the cello, but they know Yo-Yo Ma. And I think a lot of that is because he went on these shows. He was on Sesame Street. He would go on Mr. Rogers. So people growing up with these shows would see him in these settings. And yeah, he just makes it so accessible and fun. And he's been doing all these little clips on Instagram of songs of hope, songs of love, playing these sometimes really simple tunes, but they're just like, it's so good for the soul. It's been, he's incredible. Yeah, and I do remember distinctly the first time that I met him and was around him. It was when I was at Tanglewood at 14 years old and seeing him play and he came and talked with us and did master classes. And I thought the same thing back then. He had no attitude, no ego, nothing but just the most genuine human. And that's, I mean, we love to see that in all of the cellists around <laughs> we us. We do. I've often <laughs> wondered if musicians can sometimes be a little out of touch with reality. We spend a lot of time in a practice yes. room by ourselves. We spend a lot of time growing up being told how amazing and talented we are. You know, of course, it's going to go to our heads a little bit. The fact that I think he's married to like an anesthesiologist or a lawyer. I should look this up. He's married to someone that's not a musician. And I think they were they've were they been right. married for a long time. And I think that's really important to have. <laughs> Maybe that's kept him grounded just to have it does keep one foot in the real exactly. world sometimes when your whole life isn't around people that do what you exactly. do that is very true yeah, that would be my advice for young people actually is <laughs> fall in love with someone who's not a musician <laughs> it is important to have somebody in your life that's your partner that understands what it takes to be a musician there are other careers that are very similar to professional athletes professional artists of any kind that really are dedicated and driven to one specific thing. And if you're with a partner that doesn't really understand what that takes, they won't really understand what makes you tick. So that is important. Exactly. Yeah. That it's not, it's not a nine to five profession. It's not going to be falling at these convenient hours and weekends. And so yeah, to have someone that understands that is, is very crucial. So having played in four orchestras, can you talk some about the differences and similarities in each place, what that was like? Oh boy. Every orchestra, it's funny and you and you don't really pick up on this just from subbing a week or two I think in a place, but I've spent a couple years like you said in four different places, five really because I had a job in Huntsville, Alabama when I was still in school. Oh. And every orchestra is so different and yet so the same. You start noticing personalities and you're like, "Oh, that person is so and so 
in this other group, you know, and you kind of know how to approach it. Dallas was the first job that I went to that I didn't really know anybody there already from a summer festival or from school or something. Mm -hmm. And so that was a different experience for me kind of coming in totally from scratch and starting relationships and friendships from nothing. And you still start to realize we're all so similar (laughs) in terms of personality. But it's really fun to play in different groups and in different sections and in different halls and to get to know these places with different conductors. It's been a real privilege. And have you found that there's difficult personalities in every cello section you've been a part of? Or do you think we're the, the most calm of what every section? What are you section? talking about? There's no difficult personalities. <laughs> Hang on one second. I'm going to okay. pick up a baby see if he will tolerate this. Well, this is, I think, a good time to talk about what you've been up to during the <laughs> pandemic now that you have a new baby in your lap. Yes. Noam just turned three months yesterday. This has been my pandemic project, which as weird as it's been, it's kind of been the perfect time because there hasn't been any work really that I've had to miss. I think it would have been really hard to be, I mean, it's hard for everybody to be out of work right now, but I at least haven't been missing a whole lot and I can stay home and hang out with this guy, which has been really fun. Yes. Somehow you timed that really well, (laughs) being home with him. (laughs) It's excellent. What is St. Louis up to right now during the pandemic? Have they been performing? We did in the fall, a number of these on-the-go outside concerts. We had a a trailer that had a little portable stage that we would go to different places in the parks, different nursing homes, community centers, and small chamber groups would play in different places around the city. And that was actually one of the silver linings of this weird time is being able to connect with people in different communities that might not make it to Powell Hall for our traditional concerts. And we did get to play a couple chamber orchestra concerts in the fall. My last one was in November with Stefan, who came in town and was able to do those. And so that was, I was tearing up after going since March without playing in a big group and then to sit on stage again and to have just those first notes of the string section. It was, ugh, it was amazing. Things have been pretty quiet the last few months because with cases spiking, they wanted to be really careful. And we're just now starting with some more chamber music. I think they're going to have some live stream concerts and then chamber orchestra again starting up this spring. Oh, good. So yeah, it's really great. Yeah, hopefully things are looking a lot more positive going into this fall. Hopefully we'll have some normalcy return. And I'm looking forward to playing with a whole orchestra. The chamber orchestra has been great, but I miss playing with the big group. That will be fun to get back to. For sure. I think chamber music in general, orchestra players don't really get... I mean, you do. You have your own series. You are a rare exception. A lot of orchestra players don't play a lot of chamber music, I think. And so it's been really nice to have those opportunities, but I'm with you. I can't wait to get back and play the big stuff again. That's really what I love the most. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason we all joined an orchestra, and I think that's the heart of it. Playing the Mahler symphonies and the Strauss symphonies and the huge John Williams type works. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about when you're in the orchestra about the tenure process, because you've now been through that, I guess, four times. And something that I used to think meant 10 years, (laughs) and I learned later what tenure really meant. The only place we hear about tenure is in the orchestra world and the college world. Right. So what was that like? And maybe for our audience, for people who don't know what tenure is, you can explain what that means. In professional orchestras, an aspect of the the contract, the CBA, that I think every group probably has negotiated is the possibility of tenure, the privilege, I would call it, of tenure, where after a certain process, after you join an orchestra, usually it's two seasons. If you start at the beginning of a season, it can be different. If you join midway, like I did in Atlanta, it can kind of change the process. But After kind of, it's kind of your trial period 
And if everything goes well, you get good feedback and you can respond to that feedback and make adjustments and you're a good colleague, then you're granted tenure, which basically means you're really, really hard to fire. <laughs> yeah. You have to do something really bad. <laughs> you have to do something really bad. There's a long process to getting rid of you once you have tenure, which of course I think stems from, not of course, people might not know this. It stems from the days when conductors were kind of tyrannical and would kind of, you could just point to one person if you looked at him wrong and could, you know, he'd be like, you're out. And so it's really, really nice to have that level of protection built in when conductors come and go and musicians maybe are playing in the same orchestra for decades. It's nice to feel like you wouldn't be subject to the whims of one person in whatever mood they're in that day. At the same time, there are downsides to that also, having that level of protection. I feel like it can make people feel a lot more comfortable in not bringing their A-game necessarily all the time. I definitely do not take it for granted. I am very inspired by the level of the high level that a lot of my colleagues bring to work every day. And I try to always be prepared and study the score, know my part and all that stuff so that I can really be contributing member to the orchestra and not just take for granted that I can sit back there and cruise. Especially I think as a section string member, you're not really going to be heard by yourself. Yeah. And so unless there's a major, major problem, you can kind of coast for a while just being mediocre. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, and it helps to remind us, I think, remind ourselves that there's hundreds of people that would be happy to grab our job on any given day yep. and that we should still be putting our best foot forward. Otherwise, let's let someone else who's hungry take that position. Absolutely. Take up that space on stage. Absolutely. If there was, yeah, if there was some sort of evaluation process every once in a while, I don't know. It's kind of like getting your driver's license also. Yeah. Like you get this once, you work really hard to get this one thing, and then you're kind of set for the rest of your life, really. And no one comes in and is like, Are you really that good of a driver still? You know, <laughs> there are other people that this could maybe be better for, but that's true. But yeah, so then the 10 year process, you usually will meet with the music director after your trial period. If it's all been been a good process, then you are granted tenure. Did you find that the process was similarly implemented? I would say it's very similar. Yeah. The only thing that would change would be the timeline. Maybe, like I said, I started in Atlanta in the middle of a season. You all were very kind to kind of give me an abbreviated tenure process because things were going well and it was a good fit. And so I got tenure a little quicker there than in other places. But otherwise it is, it's a very pretty standard process. You'll have a few meetings throughout those two years for people to give you feedback, things you could work on or things that you're doing well. It's not just about playing either. It's about being a good colleague, showing up on time, right? being friendly, or at least not rude. Yeah. Don't want to make too many enemies during the tenure process. Exactly. Might yeah. want to keep your politics out of the workplace for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just keep any strong opinions to yourself for a while. My father gave me the best advice on that when I first got the job. He said, okay, he said, until you have tenure, keep your mouth shut. And I followed that. Yeah, it's probably hard <laughs> so, for you to do, isn't it? That was that was hard for me. <laughs> I mean, you don't want to be you don't want to be like a soulless robot. You want to let your personality shine through, but just a little bit. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have to be a little careful. Is there anything else you would like to share with our audience that you would think might be useful? All I can think about right now, and it's because I haven't played in a full orchestra in a year, exactly. My last full orchestra service was a year ago today, or in a group in general in several months, is just what a privilege it is to get to play music with other people. 
as weird as this time has been, I hope it has made everyone appreciate even more how special that is if they have forgotten Mm -hmm. or you kind of start to take it for granted or become a little jaded or just kind of like, whatever, it's my job. It's not just the job. It's a real special thing that we are giving to our communities and we should treat it that way and, and try to keep it really special. Yeah, I agree. Where can people find you on social media? On social media, Instagram. I'm not that active on social media, but I do have a Facebook account, just Jennifer Humphreys. And then on Instagram, I am 31 Jumphreys. So J Humphreys. (laughs) (laughs) There's no H in there. Those are my only two. There's no H. Yeah. (laughs) I can't remember why I picked that. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cello Sherpa podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to our fifth episode of the Cello Sherpa podcast. Be sure and catch our next episode where we interview Robert Spano, music director of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. We're here to serve you, so if you have questions or topic suggestions you would like us to cover in future episodes, please use the contact page on our website, thecellosherpa.com, or tweet them at us, at thecellosherpa. You will also find information about the specific services we offer on the website. Be sure and subscribe to the Cello Sherpa podcast so you'll be notified when our next episode posts. Today's episode was produced, recorded, and mostly edited by Joel Dallow with some much-needed assistance from Mark DeClaudio at 3Wire Creative. You can find more information about them at 3, and that's the number 3, wirecreative.com.